The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Presently, by God's grace, we are undertaking a complete exegetical study of Paul's letter to the Romans. In our last episode, we examined Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In this episode, we continue our trek verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Keep in mind, as stated earlier, that Paul is now on his third missionary journey riding from the city of Corinth to the church at Rome, where Paul has not yet visited. Let's continue our study of Romans with chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now first let's talk about the underlying language in the word power. The original word power from Greek is the word dunamis, which is where we get our current English word dynamite. 
It is that power which, like dynamite, is able to move huge volumes of rock and dirt and other materials and to transform things. Secondly, we're reminded by Paul that God's sovereign will is that first he would come to his own, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, in order to keep his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all them who had uh, lived according to faith, and it was imputed to them as righteousness. And this was the continuing theme by the time Paul was writing his letter, was to remind those that God was always faithful to bring the gospel and the opportunity for salvation to his own people. Secondarily, as the gospel was brought forth by Christ, and the Jews, or some of the Jews, were rejecting it, then by also God's sovereign grace, he began to open the gospel and the opportunity to salvation to the Gentiles, i.e. those who are of non-Jewish lineage, that they also might be brought into the body of Christ. In any case, this power of which Paul speaks the God, which is the gospel of Christ, reveals the mechanism by which God's righteousness is ultimately imputed within us. It reveals his plan for, first of all, justifying us, and with a process that begins, continues, and ends with faith in Jesus Christ, which is given to us by the grace of God according to his sovereign will. And in this reality, Paul confesses boldly that he is not embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is God's word which carries this power, this dunamis, this dynamite, which is implied there. And the, it is that power by which, by God's grace and sovereign will, transforms people from their state of unbelief, their inability to believe, to the ability by that power to be given God's salvation for those whom God is pleased to open their heart of unbelief to belief. Now, every time I read this verse and this issue of power, dunamis, I am inevitably brought to the contrast which we find in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, beginning at verse 3. You'll recall there that it says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said, this serpent says unto the woman, Ye hath, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Here he's referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had planted in the garden, and which was the only tree, the only thing to which God had given commandment to Adam and Eve to refrain from eating. In verse 2, we see that this serpent has an encounter with the woman whom God created for Adam, and the woman begins to speak to the serpent, saying, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, which was a true statement. Then in verse 3, she continues saying, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. 
Now, it's a half-truth because, yes, he said, don't eat it, but he never said, touch it. That may have been implied, it may have been stated and left out of the text, but here it appears to be added to the commandment by God on the part of Eve. In verse 4, the serpent replies to Eve, saying, And the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. In other words, she's planting doubt in the heart of Eve as to God's validity, faithfulness, and his truthfulness. Verse 5 continuing, again Satan speaking, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So as you may recall, for those of you who are longtime listeners, in the very first podcast that I presented, The uh, Problem of Evil, I made the case that What appears to be happening is that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in fact representative of the law, the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances which are indicative and represent all of God's various attributes. They are the totality of what uh, God's morality and his uh, code of ethics are as God. You will also recall that God created Adam and Eve and that he blessed them and everything else, saying that it was very good. Now, you have to ask yourself, what had Adam and Eve done up to that point which merited God saying that it was very good? They had not done anything. God had simply created them. They existed. They were there. And God said, it is very good. So there was no works. There was no merit. There was no effort. There was no uh, doing of anything or refraining from doing everything. In fact, what we see conversely is that the underlying text and all of the teachings from uh, rabbinic sources tell us that when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a covering, his covering grace that they were created in his image, having the bearing many of those attributes which God already had, his righteousness, his holiness, and so forth. And God was covering them with that so that in a very large respect, they were already having the approval of God, yet they had the ability to sin, to fall away. Then we come to this issue of the serpent talking to the woman and by implication Adam as well and all mankind saying that number one won't die and number two more importantly that when they consume uh, this tree this knowledge of good and evil and its understanding of all uh, of God's attributes then they will be like God in other words it's the same thing that Satan did he assumed that he could be like God he lifted himself up in his own mind and looked at himself and his own beauty or supposed beauty his created beauty and said hey I'm just as good as God and this is what he was trying to pass on to Adam and to Eve now what Satan didn't do was to 
uh, share with Eve and with Adam the fine print of, so to speak, of what was going on. Yes, they will know good and evil. They'll have the knowledge. They'll have the understanding of what to do and what not to do and all of the commandments which would later uh, cumulatively rise to the point of 613 commandments. But what they will never have is the power, the dunamis in order to be able to carry out the good and to refrain from the evil because as soon as they turn their eyes from God and his covering grace and then turn to their own abilities inherently apart from God, they were immediately separated at that point that they made that turning in their own mind. And here, as we come to Romans, what we see Paul reminding us is that the gospel, the truth of who Christ is and what he did in his propitiatory sacrifice once and for all, saying it is finished and imputing to us his righteousness and his completed work, that that is the power which was lacking in the Garden of Eden according to the knowledge of good and evil, the commandments and the statutes and so forth. It's the power which brings about salvation, that change, that transformation in the same way that dynamite transforms. So this is a very powerful verse reminding us of the contrast between the inability there in Genesis chapter 3 and the sufficiency found in verse 16 and the New Testament with what Jesus has done with his propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. Verse 17, speaking further of the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here the word revealed in the original, apocalypto, which is where we also get the uh, translation to the last book in the Old New Testament, Revelation, is to take the cover off, to disclose or to reveal Secondly, verse 17 is a reference to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, quote, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith, unquote. Now, Paul makes reference to this Old Testament book in three of his epistles, here in Romans, Galatians, and in Hebrews, the three, which are a trilogy that amplify Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and are the cornerstones of the New Testament and his epistles. There are also Christ's marching orders for the daunting challenges that we too continue to be faced with. So number one, we have the just, who shall live by faith. And we have to ask the question, well, who are the just? The epistle to the Romans was Paul's definitive answer as to who are the just. Secondly, the just shall live by faith. The question then is, how shall they live? 
Well, the epistle to the Galatians is Paul's definitive answer as to how shall they live. And then thirdly, the just shall live by faith. How shall the just live by faith? Well, the epistle to the Hebrews is a call to maturity, and it leads to the famed hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So, verse 17 is the sum total explanation of salvation according to the principles of God's grace. The gospel contains the nucleus of salvation, which is God's gift of faith, to those whom he is pleased to impart it, however small, like a mustard seed, in the heart which God chooses to circumcise. By this small seed of initial faith, the chosen hearer has ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that is softened to his will and his small voice. Within the silence of conviction brought about through the work of God's Holy Spirit, we receive the understanding of our broken, rebellious, sinful, fallen nature. God is holy, merciful, long-suffering, good, and loving. The realization of our complete inadequacy and inability by God's grace brings us to repentance. We finally see our total inability to please God according to our merits, our works, our efforts, and our deeds, contrary to what was promised by Satan in Genesis chapter 3. There's simply no way on our own or in concert with other men to earn God's approval. The only solution is Christ, who, as fully God and fully man, completed all righteousness to its fullest, richest possibility and 100% pleased God. Christ died on the cross in order to completely pay the price for all of my and your sin against God and rose again that by faith we being buried with him in his crucifixion and death that we might also be risen to the newness of life by his resurrection. My debt to God due to sin is paid in full. Thus, my justification, my position of being brought from death, hell, and the grave is made effective by the faith which is the gift of God. Likewise, my day-to-day -day sanctification into the fullness and the measure of the stature of Christ is made possible by a continued and abiding faith which God has chosen to begin, and he will, by his sovereign grace, likewise faithfully complete it to its uttermost. Hence, it is by God's grace that those whom God has called and chosen to salvation do so by Christ's righteousness, which God reveals from faith to faith. Here in verse 18, we begin a series of somewhat controversial and famous verses. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The word revealed, again, the context would better suggest evident or obvious. 
through the human conscience implanted within every human being. God gives every person some ability to discern at some level between good and evil, right and wrong. All people innately sense and know the truth, but to some level they ignore it or eventually prefer a lie rather than the truth for their own ulterior motives. In Corinth, as for example, you could find the cults of the gods of Egypt, Rome, and Greece. The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, stood atop the Acrocorinth. It had fallen into ruins by Paul's time, but successors to its 1,000 cult prostitutes continued to ply their profession in the city below. Corinth was a city catering to sailors and traveling salesmen. It had earned a very unsavory reputation for its libertine atmosphere. In fact, to call someone a Corinthian was to impugn their morals. The city historically was filled with sailors who gladly spent their money there. The name Corinth became a synonym for immorality. The temple gave Corinth its reputation for gross immorality, of which Paul often spoke, as for example in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 20 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 20 through 21. Of equal fame in Corinth was the temple of Poseidon, ruler of the sea, uh, on which Corinth's commercial life depended. Poseidon had a very large temple at a nearby village where the biennial Isthmian games were held. Numerous other temples in Corinth include ones to Apollo, Hermes, Venus, Fortuna, Isis, and one dedicated to all the gods in general throughout the uh, Pantheon. Uh, on the slopes of the uh, Acre Corinth was the sanctuary of Demeter, which dates from the 6th and 7th centuries BC. In Corinth, as often found in other parts of ancient Greece, there was a shrine dedicated to Asclepos, the god of healing, and his daughter Hygeria. In a room of the museum at Corinth are hundreds of terracotta votive offerings presented to Asclepius by pilgrims who sought a cure or who wanted to thank the god for healing which they attributed to him. In a time-honored tradition, petitioners to Asclepius had dedicated replicas of the particular parts of the body in which they were afflicted. On the hill overlooking the Roman city's main forum stood the Temple of Apollo, which served as a reminder of Corinth's ancient splendor. Now, if you think I'm describing Las Vegas, you're only partially right. However, the place I'm really describing is the city of Corinth. This was a city that flourished in the New Testament times, and recent excavations have uncovered over 33 wine shops or bars located in downtown Corinth. The wine shops featured lofted rooms where travelers would get enticed into these lofts for illicit sexual activity with prostitutes and or other partygoers. The city of Corinth had several characteristics during uh, Paul's time. Uh, 
First of all, it was an inclusive place full of ethnic diversity. This is a place where cultures collided. It was a place with a revolving door whose streets were filled with sailors, military men, businessmen, and thrill seekers from all corners of the earth. And it was a place full of people who never stay very long, but only come to fulfill their base desires. It was a place of perpetual vanity where every imaginable sin and vice is not only indulged, but celebrated openly. It was a place where men were robbed of purpose and where young women and teenagers were exploited for their sexuality. It was a place where well-to-do come to squander their prosperity and where commercialized gambling, debauchery, drinking, and prostitution failed to raise even a single eyebrow. It was a place where true religion was debased in the name of entertainment and where sex was practiced and considered a religion in itself, and sexuality was flaunted ad nauseum. We are talking about a city literally without limits, where all inhibition was cast aside, a place unshackled by morality or by God's laws. It was a place where people feel free, Sexual license was the rule rather than the exception in much of the ancient Mediterranean world at large, and and the main cause of prostitution was the Greek view of life, which regarded sexual intercourse as just as natural and necessary and justifiable as uh, eating and drinking. Athanasius devoted Book 8 of the Diapnosophists to extramarital sex among the Greeks. He indicates in his book that prostitution was an established and respected function in Corinth. Athanasius relates that whenever the city of Corinth would pray to Aphrodite in matters of grave importance, the people would invite as many prostitutes as possible to join in their petitions, and these women would add their supplications to the goddess and later be present at the sacrifices. Further, it was the custom for the city to celebrate the festival of Aphrodite for the prostitutes. But the problems of sexual license were not limited to prostitution. The Roman sage and cynic Seneca wrote, quote, Is there any shame at all for adultery now that matters have come to such a pass that no woman has any use for a husband except to inflame her lover? Chastity is simply a proof of ugliness, unquote. So consequently, when Paul quoted from Jesus that the wife should not leave her husband, nor the husband divorce his wife, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10-11, through 11, he was teaching something very novel indeed to the Greek society in Corinth. In the Apostles' day, Corinth had several nicknames. It was known as Carnal Corinth, Sin City, or Vanity Fair. To Corinthianize a person was to corrupt a person. It was to take him beyond his moral limits. People went to Corinth to be Corinthianized. It was like a rite of passage, just like going to Las Vegas or uh, San Francisco today. The unspoken motto was, Come send here. 
come indulge here. There was no greater insult that could be given to a woman than to be called a Corinthian. Smack dab in the middle of carnal Corinth, Sin City, with the help of missionaries, Aquila and Priscilla, the Lord Jesus Christ sent the Apostle Paul to establish a church. You can read about it in Acts 18. If you were to plant a church, would you rather plant a church in Las Vegas or somewhere in the Bible Belt? The Apostle Paul established a church in one of the darkest, most morally corrupt cities in the Roman Empire. He placed it in a stronghold of Satan's kingdom. It was within this environment and this history that we read verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. I will trust in him. I